You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading and sermon text is from Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan... In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to, send me to Judah, to, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when you, will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the gover- governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Just a quick word before we begin. Um, We think that one of the best things in the world for kids uh, is to sit with their parents, to worship with their parents, to have to deal with a long sermon with their parents, um, and, and in other words, to be in this room with us as participants in the people of God. We, we think, uh, actually, when you read the scriptures, one of the signs that God uh, is not blessing the people is when you don't hear the sounds of children in the midst of those people. Um, and, uh, and so we don't want that. We don't want to kind of hide our kids away somewhere else. We actually want them in the room. Now, now, here's the thing. We understand that doing that 
creates all kinds of wonderful problems. Um, uh, kids running away from you um, in the room and you having to chase them and everyone seeing you chase them across the room. Uh, the, the, the loud, joyful squeals of emphasis when they hear something I say that they really like. Um, the, the screaming in anger when they hear something I, they, from me that they don't like. Um, all of that stuff. And um, um, that may seem to you maybe sitting out there to be a problem. Uh, we don't think it's a problem. Um, we think it's actually by design. It is a sign of life and joy, God's blessing on us um, as a community, on you as parents, um, even though it may not feel like it in that particular moment. Um, we actually think that this is good. It is profoundly and richly and gloriously good. So um, if you're newish here and your child uh, really, really likes some things I say uh, today and starts yelling loudly, inevitably when I talk about this, it happens a lot, that sermon for whatever reason, they feel encouraged and released to just let it go. Um, I, I, I would just ask you, like, hey, I know there might be some initial embarrassment. Um, nobody in this room, unless they're really curmudgeonly, and don't be, like, curmudgeonly. Like, nobody likes that. Um, nobody in this room is looking at you going, like, oh, man, what is wrong with him? Um, they're all hearing these things now because I've told them to um, as um, the sounds of God's kindness. Get it? Okay. Good. Let me pray, and uh, we're going to jump into what will likely be a very weird sermon. Okay, good. Uh, so, Father, we, we come as your people um, into your presence, built together by your Spirit into a temple, a dwelling place, a house for you to be. Um, and so, God, we thank you for that. We thank you for every stone in this room that you've knit together in this room, um, whether they're really small and noisy um, or they're loud and, um, um, loud and bigger um, or they're quiet and just sit there quietly listening. Um, God, we thank you uh, that you've drawn us together and built us together um, as your people now um, and you have promised to fill this place with your presence. And Father, we ask now that you'd help us. Um, help us to see what you're up to in the world um, not just what you're up to in this book, Nehemiah, but God, in the light of it, what you're up to in history. Um, in your name we pray, amen. So when we think about religion, um, particularly as moderns who, who've been raised in a secular, pluralistic society, we tend to think of religion as merely a set of kind of philosophical or moral beliefs that we hold to in our heads or if we're really sentimental in our hearts and believing these things has some level of impact on the way we live our lives in the world. Um, but religion primarily, and thinking as moderns, raised in a secular society, raised in a pluralistic society, um, religion has been sequestered into the private sphere and the very personal sphere. It's a thing that helps us kind of navigate, to have hope, um, to, to have some sort of strength when days are hard. Um, it, it, may have, it, it may even inform our morals and our ethics, but it is not something that belongs in the realm of, say, history. Or perhaps in the realm of, say, uh, the, the public square. Um, that's not, within our society, the appropriate place for religion to raise its head. Instead, religion is something you believe in your heart, and it's fine for you to believe that stuff in your heart. Here's the problem. With that setup, that framework, 
Christianity, historically, has never fit in that framework. It's never been defined as something that exists outside of the public square. It's never been defined or works, um, particularly from Scripture, as a thing that just kind of happens in your own little private heart. It's a thing um, that belongs fundamentally in, in the realm of history. You see, Christianity comes to us not first and foremost as a kind of philosophy about um, ambiguous, hidden things. It doesn't come to us uh, primarily as a moral philosophy about what is right or wrong. It doesn't come to us primarily as kind of a psychological buoy or a a therapeutic path to kind of fulfillment. Christianity comes first and foremost um, making claims about the history of the world. Let me say that again. Christianity begins, begins and is fundamentally a claim about the history of the world, which means that it cannot live in your heart. It has to live in the public square. It has to live as a thing that has shaped and defined the nature of the world. You see, the confession of faith that Christians make is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Filling that out, we make the confession that Jesus Christ died, a historical event, that he rose from the dead, a historical claim. A wild one, admittedly, that we'll talk about at Easter, and you should come. Three, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father bodily. Crazy stuff. Ascended to the right hand of the Father and now reigns. Not over your little heart, but over everything, he said, in heaven and on earth. Heaven, primarily referring to, um, uh, biblically referring to everything that exists in the presence of God. Us, um, like, immediately in the presence of God, like us right now. And on earth, it doesn't leave much room anywhere else. In other words, Jesus made the fundamental claim about Christianity a historical one, about God and what God is up to in history. And secondly, um, a, a, a claim about the authority of Jesus everywhere. Not just over your personal ethics or your personal feelings, but over everything. And this <laughs> has ethical consequences. It has psychological consequences. It has moral consequences. Yes, but if the historical claims about God and what God has done in history, not just with Jesus, but in places like Persia, with rulers like Darius and Cyrus, with reformers like Ezra and Nehemiah, and Christianity is false and it shouldn't be believed. Don't take comfort in the resurrection of Jesus if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. 
That would be idiotic. A lot of people do it, and it's dumb. And you should tell them it's dumb. Help them a little bit. But if it's true, then there's nothing more comforting in the world. But what I want us to look at as we continue this week in kind of setting up the places that we're going to be going the next few weeks in the book of Nehemiah is, is the central fact that the fundamental thing that's going on in Nehemiah is history. God is acting. He's acting and fulfilling promises, fulfilling prophecies, and it's taking place in a particular moment in the history of the world, a very momentous moment, which I'm not sure if that phrase ever makes sense, but I like to use it. Momentous moment. As if any moment isn't momentous, but a momentous moment um, in which God is acting and he's always acting everywhere in history, revealing two things, who he is and what he wants to do and what he's doing actively in the world. And so for us to understand Nehemiah, there's an enormous background of history and context that that we need to get our heads around, that, that then flows into kind of all the implications that we're going to see over the next few weeks. So Toby's going to be here next week. I've asked him to take up um, immediately beginning in chapter 3 and 4 of Nehemiah um, the, the issue of conflict. We'll talk a little bit about today. And then next week he's going to talk about, hey, anytime you set out to build anything that's worth anything, you're going to face conflict. Um, and so this wonderful scene arises in chapter 3 and 4 um, where you have... Uh, those with trowels kind of building the wall of Jerusalem, building the city of Jerusalem, and they have swords. Swords and shovels. This is the mark of God's people, building what God's called us to build. Um, and so he's going to begin to address those things. But, but I want to take us this week, and this is why I said it's going to be a weird sermon. I'm going to spend a little bit of time doing some history. Thinking about what kind of got us to this moment here in Nehemiah. Where does Nehemiah fit with the book of Ezra and, and the book of First and Second Chronicles? Um, how do we understand it's like really strange, wonderful books like Daniel um, and Haggai and all these other books in the background, let, let alone the book of Esther, which is, and it's, it's like this background, this hidden background behind Nehemiah and Ezra, um, the story of this remarkable woman who God wields to actually probably is the pivotal moment in in how all of this begins to unfold. And so I want to get all of that in front of us and drive at one question that that I want us to ask, particular question I want us to ask this week, is that getting all that history in front of us, then I want to ask the question from the text, why did two Persian kings, one of them an absolute pagan, And one of them, we think particularly through the ministry of Esther and Daniel, probably becomes a believer in Yahweh, a worshiper of Yahweh. But why did these two Persian kings deem it vitally important at great personal cost to themselves and their kingdom? Why did they deem it vitally important that not only an altar was built, but a temple with that altar to, to the God of the Jews, and that a city be built up around that temple 
uh, what he calls a fortress city or the holy city of the God of heaven to be built there in Jerusalem. Why was this vitally important to them? And then alongside of this question, really another angle into this question, what are we supposed to do with that? And here's the relationship between those two questions. They didn't just want buildings built and walls secured and gates put back in place and a society restarted in this place. They wanted something that this society would do that ultimately they believed, as we'll see in the text, would benefit them. So what are we supposed to do? We have a church. We sing songs. We bring our offerings. We pray for the city. We pray for the world. We pray for one another. What are we supposed to do, though? What should this worship produce in a city like Denver in this particular moment? So that's where we're headed and, uh, and so I want to hurry a bit and get through, well, several hundred years of Persian history before we get there. Are you ready? It's very exciting stuff. Um, and so you have, if you're familiar with your Bibles, um, you have the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is all about the end of Israel, really. The end of Israel, the end of Jerusalem, the end of, uh, end of Judea. Um, how they have rebelled against God. They refuse to honor God. Um, one of the themes that arises there that's particularly concerning to me as a pastor in a church that's growing and that's in the middle of our city um, is that uh, one of the reasons it's stated for which judgment comes against Israel is they had the temple, they had the city of Jerusalem, um, they had their worship and all their ceremonies and their sacrifices and their, their really sweet music. Um, literally music that people would travel from all over because there was no other deity, no other worship format for any other deity in all the world in which you could go and hear something like a violin and something like tambourines and a whole bunch of people singing. It's amazing to me. It should be amazing to you. Like At that moment, you couldn't go anywhere where they were worshiping a God and hear music. But you show up in Jerusalem, you're on your trade route, you're on your way to Greece. You go to Jerusalem, people would stop in Jerusalem. It became an evangelistic tool. People became God-fears all over the world. Why? Because they would go home and they would say, when, if, next time you're on your route over to Athens, um, and you want to like hang out with the philosophers over there in Athens, and you're on your way and you're going to sell them your silk, uh, what you've got to do on the way is you've got to stop in Jerusalem. And when you're in Jerusalem, you've got to go to the temple about three o'clock. All these people come out and they have these things called instruments and they play them together, multiple instruments and people sing like loud. It's awesome. Never seen or heard anything like it. You got to go. So people would go and encounter this. So all of that's happening Jeremiah says that judgment is coming upon Israel. Why? Because they had all this stuff. They had the temple, they had their worship, they had their music, they had all this stuff going on, and yet their hearts were far from God. They mingled worship of God with worship of other gods, the Baals in particular. They mingled sacrifices to Yahweh with sacrifices 
to horrific evil gods. They had pretty much abandoned the law of God. We actually have one king towards the end who who tries to find every copy of God's law in the kingdom and have it burned and destroyed. Later king finds the one copy, opens it, and like people are like, wow, what is this? The law of God. Weird. No wonder we have all this stuff, music. In other words, they had worship. Like we have worship. It's singing. Like we have singing. I don't know if people would travel from all over the world to hear your singing. Maybe. Maybe I didn't hear your particular voice. But but we've got all this stuff, this outward stuff. The question that haunts us, should haunt us, is are we like Israel with hearts that are truly far from God, even though we have all this outward stuff? Hearts that don't care about God's commands and God's law. Hold on to that one. So... They're dragged off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar. This is God's judgment on Israel. The Babylonian Empire is soon conquered by Cyrus the Great. Very important character in our story and in history. Cyrus the Great conquers the Babylonian Empire. Cyrus the Great um, is uh, really a landmark ruler in the history of the world. He, He does... Um, he, he builds all kinds of roads for trade. Uh, he, um, um, he's pretty nice to people in general, um, nice to his enemies once he's conquered. I mean, before he conquers you, no. But once he conquers you, things generally go well for you. Um, he, he establishes 20 satraps. 20 satraps, that means like 20 regions, provinces. One of them is called the province beyond the river. I mean, this is the province that Jeru- the former city of Jerusalem and Israel is in. Jerusalem, by the way, when the Babylonians come, is burned to the ground. The temple is completely destroyed. Um, when when Babylon, Babylon finally shows up, they're so frustrated and angry with these stubborn people uh, that they decide, to, like, we're just destroying this place. We don't want anyone here anymore. Um, so Cyrus the Great shows up. Um, Cyrus is uh, eventually replaced for two years by ruling Campesis. Campesis. The trick in public speaking is to say whatever word you're questioning how to say with great confidence so that no one questions your brilliant historical knowledge. So Cyrus is followed by Campesis. Obviously, for two years, he's not well liked. Then he is replaced by Darius. So you've got Cyrus, Campesis, and Darius. One of the things you need to know about the, uh, the Persian Empire is they practiced a religion, a monotheistic religion, interestingly, called Zor- <laughs> Here's another one. Zoro- Zoroastrianism. Somebody was about to say it out there. I could hear you calls into question, do you practice Zoroastrianism? Um, It is, interestingly, a a, a religion that had all of these echoes of biblical religion in it. 
It was just probably people from Persia traveling through Jerusalem, hearing your great singing and instrument playing. They go back, start talking about the God of heaven, the God who's worshipped in Jerusalem, and it begins to shape the religious life of this pagan empire. Really cool stuff. Another thing to keep in mind with the Magi that we speak of around Christmas time, that we inaccurately put at the manger scene, the one at the manger scene, um, like if you set up your manger scene at Christmas, you should have like your manger, with your shepherds and all that in one room, and you should put your wise men like in the kitchen. There. Oh, we should show up later. So, so um, they came from what was previously the Persian Empire. Magi was one of the terms to describe um, their, their satraps, the ones who led or governed their particular provinces, which is why the song We Three Kings is accurate. We're not talking about magicians. We're not talking about really even astronomers. We're talking about governors, like people with real authority in that day traveling to worship Jesus. All of that is tied together with what's happening in Nehemiah and Ezra. Like those three magi show up know about Jewish prophecies, are anticipating the arrival of the Messiah because of what happens in the history of these two particular books and the book of Esther and the book of Daniel. God's up to something. Something expansive, something glorious, something that will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus and is being fulfilled in our day. As he fills the world with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Told you it'd be a weird sermon, but we keep going. So then we get to what we have here in the text. And what we have here is you think like, oh, this is like right near the middle of the Old Testament. Maybe this takes place sometime near the middle of the Old Testament. It's not. What takes place in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah um, is something that actually takes place at the very, very end of Old Testament history. So you get all the books of the prophets um, happening uh, after kind of starting Isaiah and kind of going to the end of the Old Testament. All of that is actually happening in the background of what's taking place in these books. Another thing you need to know, um, the Old Testament was written on scrolls. Um, The Books of First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah was on three scrolls and probably belonged together and was probably all written by Nehemiah. I don't have time to get into like proofs for all that. If you want direction on if that like really matters to you, like you really want to know who wrote this stuff, come talk to me. I'll give you some directions to go with that. But but what you have, in other words, is one kind of three volume story. Um, it was too long to fit on one scroll, so they spread it out over three. So you have First Chronicles, you have Second Chronicles, you have Ezra and Nehemiah together, and all of it's probably written by Nehemiah. And all of it, from First Chronicles all the way to Nehemiah, is driving at the restoration um, that takes place under Nehemiah and under Ezra. So that's kind of the history behind it. You have um, Haggai and Zechariah, from Old, Old Testament prophets, writing to encourage. They're, they're the prophets that are showing up in the background of Ezra and Nehemiah to encourage the rebuilding of the temple, to encourage the rebuilding of the city. Um, so, so if you want to find out more of kind of what's happening 
in terms of prophetic words or just preaching that's happening at the time to kind of call the people back to this task. Zechariah and Haggai are great places to go. If you want to know what's happening in the court of Cyrus and Darius, you can go read the book of Daniel, um, where uh, you have this guy, uh, this young guy who's a really smart kind of advisor to the king, um, is also uh, having really strange dreams, um, not on LSD, but just doing really, having strange dreams and telling the kings about those dreams, uh, which is kind of shaping and influencing their understanding. Uh, Daniel in the lion's den takes place with Darius. And then you have the whole story of Esther, her becoming the queen married to Darius. Um, it's like God's doing everything to get this guy saved so that he'll, he'll become to worship the God of Israel. He sends Daniel crazy dreams, lets Daniel not get eaten by lions, and Darius starts to declare that there is only one true God. And then he marries Esther, who loves God. And all of this is coming together in the background of Ezra and Nehemiah. So go back to our first point. This is history. And it's history that that grounds and roots who we believe God is and what we believe God is up to and what he's been up to through the history of the world, including now. God's working to save and to redeem his people. And he's doing it by raising up a king like Cyrus, a Zoroastrian, who Isaiah calls the Messiah, a Messiah, an anointed one, one raised up by God to initiate the rebuilding of the temple. He raises up a Darius, calls him to be the one who confesses that there is only one true God, and he is um, the the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, and, and, and he alone should be worshiped. And then uses Darius to, to, to send Ezra to go and teach people the law. Um, uh, <laughs> declares at one point, this is my, one of my favorite places, uh, there's people um, opposing the rebuilding of the temple. They come back and they start opposing on the rebuilding of the walls. And, and um, he kind of gets these letters uh, from, uh, from those people who are trying to oppose this work and rebuilding the temple. Um, and he does a search and he writes a letter back and he says, look, like, this temple should be completed. The city needs to be built around it. Um, worship, the, the worship of Yahweh should be reinstated. Um, don't, don't hinder their work at all. In fact, if anyone gets in the way of this work being completed, um, a, a beam should be ripped out of their house and they should be impaled on it. It's like a good Christian king. And so, um, <laughs> it's a great story. And so then we, we see a handful of things unfold. So first Cyrus in the book of Ezra um, we have this decree given. The temple should be rebuilt um, and prayers should be offered to the God of heaven, the one true God, on behalf of Cyrus, on behalf of Persia, and on, behalf, on behalf of the nations of the world. Now you'll find unbelieving scholars that will um, kind of theorize that Cyrus did that with a whole bunch of other gods and a whole bunch of other temples. That's, we, we actually have zero has, historical evidence of him doing that with any other nation with any other god. We, we do have Cyrus, the reformer, kind of showing up um, and sending all of these kingdoms that were captured and enslaved by the Babylonians, sending them back, giving them permission to go back into their lands. We also knew he was very tolerant, kind of let those people worship 
whatever God they wanted to when they went back to those lands. But, but nowhere do we have him financing, get this, financing the rebuilding of a temple to the God of heaven that he would be worshipped. So, so that work gets started. So, so Israel goes back into their land, and the very first thing they do is build an altar. Now, certain kinds of, of, uh, of prayers are offered in an altar, particularly, um, and you see this throughout the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, um, and, and those are intercessory prayers. In other words, psalms of uh, prayers of ascent. So the very first thing they do um, in fulfillment of what Cyrus had told them to do is they go back into Israel, they build an altar, and they begin to pray for the nations. They begin to pray for Cyrus. They begin to pray for his rule. They begin to pray for peace. Um, then they start to do work on the temple. They begin to sing as the foundation stones are laid for the temple. And they're, they're, immediately their enemies show up and try to get things stopped. And they do, through, do so through lawyers. Hear that, lawyers? Lawyers. Get rid of the lawyers. So, um, <clears throat> lawyers write letters. Probably... Well, they write letters probably to Cyrus, probably to actually to one of Cyrus's under, underlings. Work on the temple is stopped, and it stops for 20 years. And they write a letter, again, to Darius during his second year of his reign. That letter goes to Darius, and Darius makes search of all the records, finds the decree from Cyrus, and says, no, 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 this work must go on. And again, just in case you missed it the first time, and I like telling it again, if anyone hinders this work, may a beam be ripped from their house and them impaled upon it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and so, you have Darius, and then Darius, in, in Ezra chapter 7, recognizes that now that the temple is completed, the temple is completed at the end of chapter 6, worship has started in earnest. There's something else that's needed. So he sends Ezra, who's not there yet, sends Ezra with enormous amounts of silver and gold to beautify the temple and to instruct all of God's people on how they should live according to God's law. So first he establishes worship, and then accompanying that worship, he wants to glorify the temple of God with gold and the obedience of God's people to all that God had instructed them to do. And then, we get to Nehemiah, and the text that we looked at here. Nehemiah gets reports. The temple's been rebuilt. They got lots of money. The law, they've been instructed in the law of God. But the city is just, it's, it's a ruin around that temple. So he goes to Darius. It's interesting, the text tells us that the queen is there. Esther is there. And he asks that Darius will send him to repair the walls of Jerusalem. In other words, to rebuild the city that's meant to grow out from the worship of God's people. That kind of gets us up to speed in Nehemiah. He shows up, starts to rebuild the walls. Next week, we're going to jump into the fact that he faced opposition too. So here's where I want us to end today. What, why 
The two Persian kings ordered the rebuilding of the temple of God, the teaching of the law, the rebuilding of the city wall. In other words, what do they know about why we're here? That perhaps our magistrates don't know. And perhaps we don't know. We know that Cyrus, text tells us, he was filled with the Spirit of God that directed him towards this. And we know that he says uh, later, he says, look, I, I need you to go worship, offer sacrifices, and pray, um, lest the wrath of God come against us as a people. It's interesting, right? You guys go worship so that God doesn't pour out his wrath on us. That there's this kind of priestly role as the people of God gather for worship um, that, that affects and brings grace and mercy around the places um, and for the people who are surrounded by the places where God is worshipped. That Darius wants the house to be glorified and marked by um, both protection, so the walls should be built up. He, he says, um, uh, go and restore the fortress of God the fortress of the temple, in other words, there's a city um, that, that's meant to guard and protect um, the worship of Yahweh. In other words, he understands that, like, hey, we want this, th- this temple, we want this God to be worshipped there, and we want the word to be taught there, and we want there to be, grow up around this, a whole society, a whole way of being, a whole way of doing business, a whole way of raising families, a whole way of doing kids, because this will be good for everyone. So, so what, why did they do this? What did they know that perhaps we don't know? What, what are we here for? We gather in this city, here on the other side of the coming of Christ, which we'll talk about in a minute how this changes things slightly. So to offer sacrifices in the presence of God, to bring offerings in the presence of God, to pray pray for mercy, for kindness, for grace, even for those who don't know God. But we come into this place um, to worship him, to be instructed, some weeks better than others, instructed from God's law, from everything that God has said, that that would then, as we walk out those doors, are sent back into this city, this city right now that is not predominantly marked by a love for Jesus or his word, to, to go and live out in that city according to all that God says. And what does that mean? What, what, is, what, is, what does it have to do? Like, is it, now we're talking about their own little personal heart, right? No, I'm talking about um, this changes how you do marriage. It changes how you raise kids. You raise kids that belong to Jesus. Um, it, it changes how you live in the marketplace. I just went to a, an event with the Denver Institute of Faith and Work on Friday where they, I mean, you had 400 business people mostly um, uh, and the, the occasional lame pastor like me in there. But, but for, for the most part, um, a whole bunch of business people all getting together to talk about how does our allegiance to Jesus shape how we do business? How we manage our employees, how we pay our employees, the kinds of products that we provide. In other words, the worship of Jesus, according to God's design, as we gather in this room, we bring our offerings, we offer our prayers, we receive instruction in the word of God, we feast at this table with the God of the universe, begins to shape 
every single mundane part of your life. As you live in all kinds of different suburbs, some of you, the city, some of us, better, just joking, totally joking, suburbs are fine. Colorado Springs, some of you, strange. Um, Like in all of those places, you begin to do marriage differently. Like like you, 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 you practice husbanding and wifing it's a weird way to put it, but according to Ephesians 5, you, in other words, you, you give expression to the gospel of Jesus in the way that you're married. Um, parents, you raise kids who self-consciously belong to God and are loyal to him and love him. So some of you, you, you're managed in your job. Maybe you're a barista. And so you barista, how do you verb, make that a verb? You make coffee um, in, a, in a way that like serves people and glorifies God. So some of you manage people. What a glorious opportunity in managing people to honor and glorify God, to live according to God's law, to take more pain as a manager than you dole out. Just a little more. Like in other words, every single aspect of our life comes under the words of God, the rules of God, the law of God, and gives expression to the the beauty of what it means to be the people of God, and it gets sprinkled all over this city and the suburbs surrounding it. And Colorado Springs, the suburb way far, far south, it gets sprinkled in all of those places, glorifying the temple, bearing witness to the rain, the wisdom, the goodness of God, and our city has changed. And it all started back in Ezra and Nehemiah. As God begins the process that he then completes in the book of Acts, of not having one temple in one city in the, in, um, off the Mediterranean Sea in Jerusalem and Judea, but taking that concept, that idea, of cities, what's at the very middle of those cities and affecting the life of those cities and transforming the life of those cities. Um, um, But taking that idea and setting up temples in every city on the earth. In other words, churches that worship God, that submit to his word, that love him in light of the work of Jesus, who bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. That all magistrates, all magistrates, all governors and mayors and presidents and senators should serve him. That every business be a great business. If it's modeled according to the words of God and the grace of God, the authority of God. Building families that honor God and glorify God and marriages that express the love of Christ for the church and the and love of the church for Christ and raising children that belong to Jesus are marked by his waters. And all of it marked deeply by hospitality as we invite neighbors who don't know Jesus, who don't know this God, this glorious and strange God, to come in to eat with us, to drink with us, and to worship the God of Israel, the God of heaven, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Let's pray. Move to communion. So King Jesus, we come to your table. The table where through the body 
and the blood, we have fellowship, communion with the God of heaven. The God who reigns over all things. The God who has redeemed us and rescued us and washed us and forgiven us. So God, be with us now as we eat, as we drink, and as we sing. In your name we pray. Amen.